So we are hardly data security experts. So data security probably is not using the same password for everything. I use different passwords. I use password one, two, three and password four, five, six. And one, two, three password. Sometimes with a capital P, sometimes not. You know, you never know. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and digital patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on digital tools, solutions, strategies, and processes that are impacting our industry today. All right. Well, welcome. That was, as you'll notice, not Chris or I that just did the intro. That was actually Jordan Howard. And you may have heard her last week as well on the Live from HCIC podcast episode number 38. She is with OM Healthcare and was nice enough to do the live read for us. A lot of fun. It turned out really good. And honestly, there are probably lots of other people out there that have cool voices and would be a better read on the intro than Chris and I. If you have an interest or you would like to read our intro that we will then use on future podcasts, let us know. So hit us up on Twitter. Uh, send us an email, however you know us, LinkedIn, etc., and we will uh, we'll make that happen. This is Reed Smith, and on the other side of the microphone is Chris Boyer. You can find him at ChristopherBoyer.com, at Chris Boyer on all the social channels. Stay in contact with him as he works with hospitals throughout the weeks and months. How's it going? Pretty good, Reed. Good morning to you. That's Reed Smith on the other side of that microphone. We are once again separated by a long distance, unlike last week. Um, Reed Smith is a digital expert. He is a strategist, social media guy. He's doing a lot of cool stuff with understanding how hospitals across the country are using digital and social to communicate and engage with patients. He can be found online at socialhealthinstitute.com. And you can also find them on all of those cool social channels out there, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Snapchat, and all those other fun things out there. Read. This episode of the Touchpoint Podcast is sponsored by Loyal. Loyal's AI-driven platform provides health systems with the tools needed to amplify patient feedback and guide patients through their digital journey. For more information, please visit LoyalHealth.com. So happy to be back with you, even though we are separated by the miles today. Back to the regularly scheduled programming Mm -hmm. of uh, not in front of a live studio audience like last week. Mm -hmm. So, again, just a quick thank you to our guest and thanks for everybody that came to watch and participate, uh, much like Jordan did last week here in actually here in Austin at the Healthcare Internet Conference. So that was uh, that was a lot of fun. If you haven't listened to that panel, we had some really smart folks from. Doximity, Binary Fountain, Medicom Health join us. So lots of lots of good info. Yeah, it was a great show too. I really had a good time there. Met up with a lot of people and met a lot of new people. And it's a healthcare internet conference. It's one of those conferences that we recommend people to go to if you go back to one of our previous episodes. So And it was great that it was in Austin. So, well, Reed, we're going to roll up our sleeves today and talk about a topic that maybe you and I are not experts on. That's a pretty safe bet. <laughs> Data and cybersecurity in hospitals. 
So again, this is one of those topics that I know a little bit about, and for most people, I could probably fake it and uh, sound like I know uh, <laughs> a decent amount about. But when it really gets down to it, thank goodness we've got some other experts out there, one of which is uh, going to be an expert interview here in just a little mm-hmm. bit, uh, Mark Burnett from LBMC Information Security. And so more there, and quite honestly, as we've dug into this topic, there's probably even warrant some additional podcasts around some really specific mm-hmm. things you know, that are, that are pieces of the overall you know, cybersecurity landscape. But anyway, more on that mm-hmm. to come. Uh, but just a disclaimer that no, we are not experts. But I, but Reed, just so you know, I was on the cover of Health Data Management magazine many years ago. Now that's a distinction that not many people know because it's not a very popular magazine. But uh, no, it's a great magazine. But I mean, not many people get, get that. But it was interesting. It was back in when I was working at Innova, and maybe in the show notes we'll mm-hmm. post a a link to the photo that the very dorky photo of me that was taken that was on the cover. But we were talking about social media in healthcare at the time. So, but anyway, yeah. So today we're going to get into it. We're going to talk about this as a high level discussion on the topic, and I think it's very important that we are talking about security and it's equally important for people that are doing digital marketing and digital communications because our roles are starting to decline with health IT and uh, and security so yeah so much like you're just talking about this is one of those areas where we've seen um, our roles within the organization blur a little bit and kind of overlap with some of our other counterparts in this case with the ITNS folks but the most common thing or the most recent thing maybe that we've seen is breach around personal information. So the, the Equifax mm-hmm. breach. Did you go out to the website, Reed, and, and, and sign up to get the free security check? And I feel like that was just another way to put more information out there that somebody else was going to get a hold of. No, I didn't do it. Did you do it? Same. I, you know, and all the challenges that I heard, they, they just kind of really foibled the rollout of how to handle that crisis. That was, we could go into a whole other podcast on just the topic of how Equifax really kind of messed up the crisis communication on that part. We hear about identity theft all the time, the retailer. Especially around, especially around credit cards, right? And it's a lot of those retailers that have their own credit card. So they have their own databases. So you have like a target or a, you know, Target was obviously in the news in the recent years. Uh, different email providers. Yahoo. I still have a Yahoo account, and all yeah. that data was compromised just recently, and that kind of impacted how they are. And then let's not forget good old-fashioned spam, which I get all the time. Mm-hmm. That's another way to actually get information and start to compromise. I mean, it's out there. There's a lot of stuff that's out there. And it gets and it's becoming even more and more complex as we become more and more digital natives in, in the, the work that we do. And proof positive not to get political, but you know, that whole the whole Russia being able to access all this targeted information and kind of shifting thoughts and ideas around a particular election through just data targeting. And that opens up this whole can of worms around data and data security. Yeah, absolutely. And so if we think about that for hospitals, I guess, specifically, you know, what, what all does that include? I mean, so some of the things that we've already mentioned make their way or kind of, uh, you know, bleed into healthcare related to people just paying their bills. And so you've got login information, credit card data. What, what, what else is kind of in that, in that genre? Why are hospitals a good target? Uh, credit card information is a, is a big part of that, but there's a lot of information that's shared with the patient record, including health data, including the, your social security number, a variety of other things. Breaching 
PHI is a big one that is of concern. We A lot of people want to keep their health information secure, so that can open up potentially expose some vulnerabilities. I think the biggest thing for hospitals, though, is that there's so many regulations around being secure with HIPAA, with PHI. And these regulations make it very hard on hospitals to create a secure data environment and also have very onerous penalties around breaches of that data. This is a huge deal. Uh, you know, I was trying to, I was sitting here thinking, you know, outside of hospitals, who has more information about an individual person? Now, now hospitals, maybe not as a whole or, or as the population as a whole, because some people have varying degrees of interactions with hospitals at, at a certain point in their life. So the younger the demographic sends the, some sort of a high acuity disease or, or something like that, m- most younger folks have not engaged with a hospital much. But as you kind of make your way through your life, you have kids, that's, that's obviously to even people that have been, you know, quote unquote healthy to that point, that's an interaction or, or a, you know, uh, a dot uh, on, the, on the timeline. And then as you get older and you start using uh, or consuming more healthcare, obviously more and more information about you is out there. I, you know, I don't know who has more information. I, <clears throat> you know, I guess there's obviously the credit card companies, the other ones that we see pretty commonly, but that's more around an e-commerce perspective, right? Maybe insurance companies, health insurance companies have some information about you that hospitals are facing a unique challenge because in effect, a lot of us as patients, we trust the hospital to be secure with our data. But on the flip side, it becomes very, very difficult to keep that data secure for those hospitals, particularly as we're moving more and more towards an openness around the patient record. Patients now being able to flow between urgent care centers and doctors and different hospitals and different insurance companies. And, you know, even me, myself, in the last three years, I've changed doctors four times. I could potentially be a very much of a big challenge on the back end, keeping track of me as an individual. Yeah, and so we're we're asking people to use these tools. And then we're trying as we you and I have talked a lot about on previous episodes trying to connect all said tools, you know, the interoperability piece. So with that, then that allows for linkages that maybe are not as they should be. There's there's more the more chances for the cat to get out of the bag, right? Right. More more people using the tools, more tools and then us trying to make all the tools connect. That's a unique challenge. And as more and more consumer demand is increasing to be open and accessing their healthcare through new devices, text messaging, social media, you know, the internet itself, it just ups the ante in such a significant way for hospitals and health systems. If I was sitting in the IT department right now in a hospital or health system, I would be very, very much concerned about what the future portends in terms of security risks and in terms of data, because it, it just keeps growing and growing and growing and growing. I don't, I wouldn't know what to do with that. It's only going to get worse at this point, right? I've changed my opinion altogether. We should just take everything down, not have any digital or social presence. But what about fax machines? Can we do fax machines? <laughs> 
Yeah, we're probably okay with that because there's nobody trying to hack a fax machine, right? I would say not anymore, but maybe at one point in time people were. I don't know. So anyway, since we're not really big experts on this topic, what Reed and I did is we kind of collected together a couple of good articles that kind of address some of the major themes and trends that we're seeing for hospitals and health systems. And I'm sure there's some people that are listening in that might want to correct us. And we encourage you to correct us or send in your your ideas, your thoughts. Uh, This is a topic that we'll probably have to explore over the course of a couple of podcast episodes at least. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's jump into a few of these articles. Well, the first one, and we'll put this all into our show notes, and we'll also release it over Twitter over the next week, the Touchpoint Podcast Twitter account. The first one is an article from Fierce Healthcare that basically is very high level, but it talks about the fact that hospitals are, are working very carefully to keep pace with patient data security. What we're going to do is highlight some quotes from people that have been doing some interesting things. This happens to be a gentleman that is the information security officer at Children's Hospitals and Clinics in Minnesota, my home state. And he says, there's expectation that you should have access to everything everywhere at all times. And that puts a tremendous burden on the IT department. One of the things that he indicates is that the biggest risk for data security is not necessarily the technology on the back end, but it's the human factor. It's the human risk. And our expert gets into this into his interview a little bit more, but the fact that it's not the technology that's the challenge. It's people that are accessing data to and from that technology that gives the biggest risk for security. And so now with one of the things that he was looking was indicating is that with meaningful use and HIPAA regulations that are in place, they're looking to actually try to understand the best way forward. He kind of gives a new light to how I see CIOs in that he's trying to be innovative, but he's doing it in a safe and secure way, which I think is is really good. He says it's giving uh, us broader input and allowing us to collaborate across departments and pushing priorities. And it's providing accountability that we really didn't have before. How do you feel about that, Reed? Is that, you know, a CIO coming from a very secure, safe place saying we're still trying to push the boundaries? I mean, I think you have to just because that's what the consumer is going to demand. This is one of those things that, you know, you probably think, you know, can't happen to me or it's not going to happen to me. You know, so it starts hitting close to home. And so as we start seeing more and more of these attacks and more and more things happen, uh, from a cybersecurity perspective, you're probably just like, well, but you know, I'm not Target, you know, I'm not these other organizations. So you know, the chances of somebody coming after me or this happening to us is slim. I think the the patient's gonna, you know, demand that they're that they can do everything online that they do everywhere else. You know, regardless of what you know level of security needs to be in place, based on the fact that this is sensitive information, whereas some other places maybe it's not. You know, having that internal desire to keep pushing the boundaries within restrictions, within reason, I think is is comforting for us to know. But it's not necessarily the whole big problem. A lot of times. It's not only just human error that makes the mistake. It's also people that are doing things from the outside that are are basically causing a lot of havoc. Ransomware, for example, which is kind of a, a phase into our next article. Ransomware always makes the news for hospitals and data security. That's very commonly where, um, I guess just by definition, means 
someone's gained access to critical pieces of your system and is basically holding it hostage for, for a ransom. You see this a lot, especially in, in the sense of like EHRs. All of a sudden, no one can access the EHR and you get like some screen that says pay us amount of money and you'll get your stuff back. The problem with that is number mm-hmm. one, says who. So you may pay all this money and still not get your stuff back. They're banking on the fact that somebody's going to click the wrong link or take a, take an action in an email specifically usually that is going to give them access to some things and we've seen a rise of this is is also around the idea that you know the kind of the bring your own device mm-hmm. strategy you know or allowing mobile devices to use some of these patient portals mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. some of those types of things again it just becomes more porous it allows more entry points it does it does and there's an interesting graph in this article uh, that shows the different security services used by healthcare organizations which extends pretty far um, many organizations are using antivirus and email web security they have firewalls and VPNs but then you know getting into vulnerability management, patch management, IDS, IPS, forensics, application control. It's a pretty exhaustive list of security devices or security technologies that they're using to keep organizations safe. But again, that points back to the biggest risk in this porousness in this open environment is the human factor. Employee training is going to be the most essential thing. And staff members at all levels need to be able to identify malicious emails and know when or when not to click on those links. Because quite frankly, those can open up access to this critical data. Yeah, and I, you know, I've heard lots of stories around this type of stuff on how you know, what the entry point looks like. And it's harder to determine this uh, in some organizations. But I had a CIO tell me not too terribly long ago uh, that they caught an, an attempt and it was because one of the employees was smart enough to use some common sense to say, this seems odd. This, this scenario of this email seems odd. So he'd gotten an email. He's in finance. He'd gotten an email from like their COO or CFO or something like that. I think it was their CFO asking him to wire a certain amount of money somewhere. The, the odd part was he's at a very small organization and offices next door to this individual. So it was like, why would this person email me this? Why wouldn't they just like say, hey, you know, do this thing, right? And realized that uh, by clicking around on, you know, some of the fields in the email, you know how you, you, know, you maybe see the person's name, but you can click on the name and it expands and shows you the email address, you know, kind of a deal. Realized that somebody was spoofing email addresses and that that wasn't the actual. So the point being is like it's still going to be that human element, like you said, and the ability to train and even bring forth these scenarios to the larger organization and not just like sit on this and go, oh, well, glad we caught that one and not tell anybody else. Yeah, you need to be using these and say, look, guys, this is how this might what happened. These are real ideas, real, you know, stories and things like that. You know, and it just as, as quickly as we maybe identify some of these phishing or these other types of risks, technology moves so quickly that, you know, there are whole organizations that are dedicated to ensuring that we're we're maintaining, you know, we're keeping up to date on some of the some of the risks that are out there. Have you heard of the College of Healthcare Information Management Executives, Reed? No. They have a great acronym, CHIME. 
They recently called for proactive policy management processes and maintain that stronger hospital ransomware legislation is necessary. So this is more than just a hospital issue. This is going to the legislative level to you know ensure that we're protecting ourselves and that there's monies in place to ensure that we're protecting security data in hospitals and health systems. I think it's important if you're starting an organization to make sure that you have a good acronym. <laughs> yes. Otherwise, it's it's worthless. Like nobody's exactly. gonna, you know. Okay, I kid. But all right, let's move on to the next article. The next one is talking about cloud computing, and this mm-hmm. is from uh, healthdatamanagement.com. Uh, how the cloud can break down silos within within hospitals. So the cloud's a good thing, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we've seen a rise of cloud computing capabilities and that that type of thing over recent years. Obviously, where's the detriment? Like, where, where does where does cybersecurity come into this? Well, what's interesting is in in my time working in hospitals, I have seen a big move of people taking um, IT departments taking their data locations from being housed on site to being housed in the cloud, moving it to more of a co-located approach. And there's pros and cons to that. One of the good things about cloud computing is it allows for a sort of a breakdown of the data silos that exist within a hospital system. And that's good, that's a good thing. Uh, and also, if you put it into a co-located server with a very secure, trusted partner, you know, that's PCI and HIPAA compliant, then what happens is you allow them to take ownership for making sure they're patching the servers, they're doing all the security on the back end. I think those are some good outcomes of going to cloud computing. Sure. If you think about it from like our perspective, from the marketing and communications perspective, what does this mean to us, right? Cloud is a convenience-based scenario. I mean, we're sharing stuff via Dropbox, Evernote, you know, box.com, even email. And we're doing that because that's the easiest way for us to get a logo to somebody or a video or this, that, and the other. The problem, I think, comes into when you know online health risk assessment tools have become popular in recent years, right? Mm-hmm. And so you're getting a pretty good chunk of PHI out of those tools. Well, because we do everything else this way, are we not just emailing that CSV file to somebody, putting it in a in a system that syncs across the inner you know, in the cloud, like Dropbox, for example? I think that's where we're seeing some of the breakdown, right? The other part of the breakdown too, Reed, is that there are so many new entrants into this marketplace, and as we talked about in the very last podcast, interoperability is not necessarily a thing that's incented with only third-party organizations. So you get your online health risk assessments, maybe you have a telemedicine component, you have different mm-hmm. electronic medical record systems, EMRs across the country that are not incented to play well with one another. The more you put in the cloud, you you are also at times creating cloud silos. And how do you get the data transported securely between all of those? It becomes a really big challenge for organizations. Cloud silos. Uh, that sounds like a good infographic <laughs> that someone should put together. Yes. Or if, if that URL has not been purchased, somebody should buy that immediately. <laughs> Cloudsilos.com. <laughs> 
so that makes an opening in the in the market for system integrators to actually start to develop ways to securely integrate data systems and start to secure that data. And so it gives rise to these data transports. And when you talk about like centralizing data marts at a hospital and you know having access to this great information, it's complex in the very least. And sometimes it's aspirational, but not necessarily attainable. Moving on to the next uh, article from uh, SiliconAngle.com. Data privacy policy just as important as the security measures protecting it. Mm -hmm. So does that mean that we have to have a policy to protect? (laughs) You make policies sound bad, Reed. You make policies sound bad. No, they're great. As long as we can find them and know where they are and somebody keeps them up to date. Yes. And I think this is one of those areas that probably is going to require more oversight and more iterations of the policy because of one of the last points you made, which was how fast all this changes. The article says that there's a common misconception that data security and data privacy are synonymous. And that's simply not the case, especially in healthcare, where oftentimes organizations don't even know what data they're collecting and the security or its impacts on the hospital's risk profile. And that was from someone from NetApp Incorporated. You know, they're basically saying you have to build a privacy compliance program to understand what data you need in order to drive business. So now it's not only accessing all the data, but it's maybe prioritizing what access to what data is important and maybe looking at ways to break down the silos, break down the (laughs) break down the barriers to actually get that data. Yeah, so this all it all ends up working its way back to this is a different type of human element, right? We've got to have folks that have oversight of this stuff and understand it well enough that they can put policies in place, but not just policies, but like we mentioned earlier, the training pieces and the the opportunities to to share insights where we make sure folks are well informed and incentivized to make sure that they, you know, follow these policies and procedures. You know, I was just recently working with a health organization, a hospital organization on developing a system to gather 360 degree feedback from their patients. In theory, that sounds really good. Uh, we want to know what our patients say and use digital to drive that that feedback mechanism. But the challenge with that is, is we had to define exactly what kind of feedback we wanted. And we've talked about this, right? Voice of customer is very important, but what does that mean? And what is what data is that specifically? We can't just say, we wanna hear all feedback from customers and make that accessible to everybody in the organization. That would be a pretty much a data security nightmare, let alone a business intelligence nightmare. Before we go any further, wanted to bring a free webinar to your attention, our friends over at Binary Fountain are doing this with their partner, Providence St. Joseph Health, on November the 16th at noon central time. They'll be talking about how they're innovating the digital consumer experience. In this webinar, you're going to learn digital healthcare trends that you should plan for and act on. Also, how to adapt to the e-commerce model for finding and booking physician appointments. And of course, Providence is going to share how they're scaling that consumer experience across the enterprise to increase patient acquisition and retention. So to RSVP, head over to BinaryFountain.com. That's BinaryFountain.com. And click on the big orange RSVP button on their homepage. Uh, you know, a lot of people are, are wondering, it's like, okay, well, how, you know, we, we write the policy or do some of these things, you know, how does, 
practicality, how do we make sure people understand and, and understand what this means, right? And so one of our last articles we have here from Healthcare IT News references the Texas Hospital Association, which in all transparency, I have a relationship with. But I think the article itself talks about, you know, some of the things that they're providing to their members, which are the hospitals in Texas, obviously, one of which is a cybersecurity awareness program, which I thought was kind of interesting. You know, they're able to go into hospitals and actually send out phishing emails. And so for those that are not sure what that is, you know, you get emails and people want you to click links and that's how they gain access to either your information or the systems where you work, you know, uh, and that type of thing where then it goes down some of these other paths. But anyway, they run some of these to gauge, you know, what percentage, you know, will people click on and kind of where are you on your preparedness around some of this? And then there's some education and some things like that. They run it again and then see, you know, what kind of improvement you've seen. So, you know, they've seen even upwards of, you know, 70% improvement is, is one of the, the instances they talk about in this article. It's kind of interesting. So it's a way to actually not just talk about things, but actually put things into practice and see what's your likelihood that, that this will happen to you kind of a deal. And Mark, who we interview, and you're going to hear that pretty soon, uh, is working with a company, LBMC, Information Security, and that's exactly what they do. Is they, they work with organizations, and specifically hospitals and health systems, in developing, understanding where their risks are, doing a risk assessment. And he goes into some of the exercises that cool. they do, working with hospitals, on how to identify where the risks are and then help to solve where those threats are and, and make things a little bit more effective. He indicates, too, that he works with people more than just the IT department. He works with people across the enterprise at a hospital to mm-hmm. help solve this problem because, quite frankly, it's an issue that impacts everybody that works within a hospital. And, and obviously, as we move more and more into the digital space, and so whether that's marketing patient experience, communications, uh, you know, even portals as it relates to certain, you know, clinical portions of the organization or just overall, you know, we have different levels of impact, I guess. One of the first places that I, uh, that I've heard a lot, and I've heard this over the last decade, social media, the security risks of social media. Social media does have a bit of, of risk, but it's really around how much information organizations are sharing through social and knowing when to take that offline, yeah. right? I mean, let's let's be realistic here. I, the number one point of entry is mm-hmm. still email and, and will be for a period of time. But we're not going to not give somebody an email right. address, right? Right. So I think social is just one of those easy things to point to and go, well, that's, you know, we're not going to do that. It's like, well, it's still coming in via email. So I don't... I don't really understand that argument very well. I mean, you can paste somebody's social security number in an email and send it just as easily as you can have it in a document that syncs with Drop Dropbox or you know some cloud service. Again, it goes back to policy, training, education. You know, another one kind of related to that, I guess, is is just that lack of understanding or control around all of that. And so you see a lot of it where you always hear about like you know text messaging, for example is not HIPAA compliant. But based out of convenience, you're still gonna have people do it. Obviously more in right. the clinical sense. Shift change handoffs, doctor orders, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Why do they do it? It's just easier. 
some of that may be, okay, well, how do people want to work? What does that process look like? And how do we find software, uh, applications, hardware even, that allow it to be accomplished that way? So we're starting to see more and more of that, you know, HIPAA compliant text messaging, you know, type apps and things like that. Again, it's always the like, eh, it's never going to happen to me. And it's also, uh, it's so much easier to text my colleague, physician, the information that they need rather than have to log into the physician portal and share a message in there. It's, mm-hmm. it's always that lack of understanding. And now as we look at things more and more yeah. are, you know, around voice-first devices or this Internet of Things, is now we're getting more and more inputs from digital touch points, the lack of understanding just amplifies dramatically. You know, why can't I ask my Alexa yeah. to uh, you know, make my doctor's appointment or tell me, read my lab results? And I think, I think we will get to that point. I mean, we're, we're going to. We're going to have to. Um, I think it dovetails nicely with telemedicine and a lot of other things where, you know, you're getting up and you're not feeling well. And, you know, you're going to get to a place where you're just talking to something and you'll never go to a doctor's office. We joked about like an EMR creating an, an Alexa device or something like that before. But I mean, that really is a good idea because that's a secure pathway in, mm-hmm. voice pathway. I'm not sure a lot of people would um, would like the fact that uh, if we have Alexa or Google access our patient records, that suddenly what that means is we're opening up the data to those companies, all of our data. So speaking of data, you know, as more and more hospitals contract and start using real true CRMs, I mean, the ones that are tied to patient data, right? That still is maybe few and far between, but there, there are some that, that are integrated nicely that include maybe even email and, you know, those types of things. You know, how much is too much, you know, when we're reaching out to these folks and advertising and sending personalized messaging and things like that, you know, we're, we're creeping down that path of, you know, how much we're putting out there. And, and based on what we know about folks. That's right. And, and the whole point about using CRM as a true CRM should be used where it understands our customer. I had a CEO of a major health system recently say to me, my CRM is my uh, electronic medical record system because it understands the customer. When we talk about CRMs in healthcare, it's usually around identifying prospects, identifying and acquiring new customers. It really is sort of the front end of the process. Very few CRMs that we know of that are in the marketplace calling themselves CRMs get to post-care communications and do it in a way that's actually that much personalized because it's just... That's just too much information. You know the patient too much, and now you're abutting against HIPAA and and PHI compliance. Yeah, I mean, we always kid about, like, if somebody visits your website and and maybe it's something relatively sensitive that maybe their coworkers don't know about, could be a disease state, could be uh, an elective procedure they're thinking about having done. You don't want those ads to be following people around the internet. Mm-mm. You know, uh, that's just kind of weird. Yet more and more websites in non-healthcare spaces are, are embracing personalization and pulling in that information. Yeah. And so, you know, websites are becoming more and more personalized. And I remember when I was working at Northwell, we implemented a CMS that was co-located and it was hosted in a secure environment that was HIPAA compliant. And in fact, our IT department reviewed the uh, contract of the website, the CMS, 
and said, I wish our IT department had such rigorous compliance. Uh, you guys are, your website's more secure than our IT department is, which gave me pause. Wow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> exactly. Not like we were tra- not like we were transferring patient information to and from our website. We wanted to set that up because personalization is something that we're building into. How far do you go here? I, it, it's it's interesting, I, and I don't know what the right answer is because now you're starting to see folks like Google and Facebook entering the healthcare mm-hmm. space. I mean, just last week I saw where Amazon. I think it was last week. They now have wholesale pharmacy license in many of the U.S. Mm-hmm. states. Here, pretty quick, it's like, okay, well, what does Amazon being able to deliver medication to me via drone look like? <laughs> yep. Yeah. And so now all of a sudden they have a ton of information about you, along with what TV shows you watch, what you like, didn't like, who your friends are. Privacy is is a foregone conclusion at this point, I think, relative to a lot of these. But um, so, how does that? you know, impact and what does that mean when there's a data breach at one of these big data warehouses like that? The potential could be mind boggling if you think about it. Again, you know, even with as we look back at the Equifax, you know, we have not seen a massive fallout from that yet. And I say yet, mm-hmm. but there I know that there's this whole dark web where people are trading information about people. Not, I don't personally know that, but I've heard of that. And yes. there is a lot of value in that data. And I have my credit cards compromised a number of times, much more nowadays than before. What does that mean for us mm-hmm. in this space? With these disruptors of technology coming in, while they're bringing in a lot of good ideas and they're bringing in much more data that allows us to be more effective in what we do, on the flip side of that, we also have to be much more secure. And that's kind of challenging. Uh, so much information gets out there. We we get lost in in the fray. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's my, I you know, it's one of those deals where it's like hopefully the free market kind of takes care of this to some degree, but it's going to be really hard trying to keep up with the sophistication of you know hackers. I I am open. I share information everywhere, but I also use two-factor authentication uh, almost everywhere I go. I hope that as we move forward, that we move forward pragmatically, but we keep pushing the boundaries as much as we can because, quite frankly, it makes things much more easier while it makes things much more complex. I think the battle is worth it. Hey, Chris, before we go too much further, jump into this next segment of the podcast, I did want to uh, mention and thank uh, one of our sponsors, Influence Health. Uh, You know, they've got a consumer experience platform that that covers several things. And correct me if I'm wrong, but we've we've talked about content management systems on this podcast. Yeah, we did. What about CRMs? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we covered CRMs for sure. And then obviously each and every week we talk about digital marketing. So digital marketing systems, uh, you know, in one way, shape or form have probably been covered, right? That's right. Digital marketing systems. And I would say that we even talk about it in a way of uh, that overall digital consumer experience. Well, there you go. I, you know, I would, I would recommend for anybody interested in one of those topics uh, or anything else, they've also got some complimentary solutions on their website. But, but head over to their website, take a look at what they've got and what they're offering relative to CMS, CRM, digital marketing systems, kind of how all that is woven together in what they call their consumer experience platform. Find your way over to influencehealth.com. I'm Bridget Thomas with Medicom Health, and I'm on team counter touch point 
And now it's time for Touch Counterpoint. Touch point, touch counterpoint. There are two sides to every story. Ready, fight! All right, now we're kicking off the section that of our podcast that I guess we are still trying to debate what we're going to call it. Um, there's a lot of confusion. Touch point, <laughs> counter, touch point, touch counter, point. I, to me, it's still very clear, but you know, to others, it might be a bit challenged, but you know, so be it. And I think we have a, an argument here that's an old one, but one that I think is still relevant today, Reed, and probably near and dear to your heart. And that is, should we continue to prevent employees from accessing social media at work for security purposes? I've heard this over time and time again over the last decade, and we're still yep. having that conversation today. So where do you come out, Reed? Pro or con social media? We should not be blocking. I'm pro social media. I don't know why we would block. I don't know what that does uh, at the end of the day uh, other than hamper our communications. You're putting me in a tricky spot, Reed, because I'm going to have to argue against social media. But I am prepared to do that, having heard the arguments for so many years now. I have, I have a good sense as to what the arguments are. So read, social media is totally risky. We should not give access to employees for social media because quite frankly, people are out there on social channels, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. They're giving away information. They're opening up the pipelines to your, to your backend systems. And they're so open to share this information willingly with other people that they're connected with that before you know it, employees are going to start sharing passwords and they're going to start sharing credentials to get into data through direct message Twitter chats, which is absolutely not secure. Uh, that very well may happen. However, you can block access if you want. Nobody's on your desktop computers anyway. Everybody has a phone. You can't keep them from getting on these channels because they have a little computer in their pocket all day. Again, really all you're doing is hampering the ability to better conversations, better dialogue. Look, it, I get it. People are bringing their computers to work, no problem, uh, through their phones, whatever. I get it. But here's the thing. We should set up big, giant devices that just basically shut off all cell phone signal when you're on the grounds of a hospital because you're opening up so much access and the risks there are so significant. You don't want to let anyone get access to it. And in the very least, if they are caught doing something on social media and we weren't aware of that as IT data security department at the hospital, they should be like fired immediately. Sidebar, I do think they do that around my children's schools. Like the signal is ridiculous. And it's like they, they have to be admitting like a um, like is there such thing as like a cell phone like deamplifier? You know, you can get like the like signal booster stuff. Anyway. I mean, I, it's ridiculous. I think these, you know, these people are there. So what happens when they go home at night on the weekends? I mean, they, they still have ample opportunities. You have a much better chance and, and a better chance of being able to understand what's going on and correct possible issues if it's much more open. If you have a better relationship with your kids and they're able to tell you, you know, about their life, the chance of you being able to, you know, provide good advice along the way versus finding out 
down the road is uh, better than if you just tell them they can't do anything and then they're trying to sneak around. It's the same scenario. Who can resist if, you know, Beyonce shows up in their emergency department for them to take a picture and put that on their social media channels and there you break PCI. I mean, that's like, that's really bad. Yeah, but she's famous. So, <laughs> so she doesn't protect, she's not protected? She, she, look, she gave up her rights a long time ago. Okay. I mean, she's, she's in the public eye. That's not my problem. Plus there's been plenty of people take her picture and tweet it out before she ever showed up to the ER. Like you're not going to be the first one. Plus she has more money than the hospital. <laughs> Who's she going to sue? So no, I, I kid, but I mean, I think that's where you, sh- I think that's where you pull up the articles of like people accessing Britney Spears records that weren't supposed to be accessing them. To understand why she was in the hospital, and they were all fired, and that stopped that. You're you're always going to have that kind of stuff, but the idea that you know you can get the toothpaste back in the tube now by like shutting off social media access is just not likely. Yeah, I I would sit here and I would try to argue that you know you could embed viruses into videos that are on Facebook or YouTube or things like that. But you know, quite frankly, all of those arguments that we've heard over the years around the security risks of social media are just not playing out. And all of the things that I try to argue against you read is really around human behavior. It's a education and a policy issue, not a technology issue, right? I mean, it's one of those deals where like, if you feel like people are going to play on Facebook all day and that's why you're blocking social media, hire better managers. That's not a Facebook issue that could very well be on Amazon or any other website that's not blocked. You know, you got to think through what some of these reasons look like and why that's the case. And in this case, uh, it's a losing battle, whether you agree with it or not. Yet we're still seeing it in hospitals. And Reed, you you talk to hospitals all the time. You've published studies on this. Data security is still one of the reasons why they block access to social. Yeah, I think so. I think it's I think it's one of three reasons. I think security or or HIPAA related concerns is is one of the primary ones. There is the productivity concern. We're gonna have people playing on the internet all day, kind of a thing. And then the last one is typically something around bandwidth and not not like manpower, but like, um, I guess, internet bandwidth. So if if people are playing videos all day using YouTube, for example, it's going to bog down critical systems that we need to work. All those are pretty easily debunked. And I'm not saying there's not ever the case where, you know, that that is true. But we can talk about the educational benefit of having access to YouTube. We can talk about the ability for, you know, to, to connect with and build internal advocates for your system using social media. Anyway, so you can go down the path and, you know, I can come up with just as many reasons to have it open, if not more. Uh, but the main one being it's just a losing battle at this point. Welcome back to the Ask the Experts section of our podcast. And today, Reed and I have been talking a lot about security, cybersecurity, and how that's really important to hospitals and health systems. Now, as you probably heard from our conversation, Reed and I are far from being experts at this. And so I was really looking forward to having a conversation today with Mark Burnett, who is with LBMC. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Chris. I'm glad to be here. Well, Mark, you've been a very busy man because, as I understand it, October 
is National Cybersecurity Month, and you've been speaking to a lot of different organizations because you are a renowned expert in this field. Why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Sure, Chris. I'll be glad to. Um, I started my career working with uh, a couple of what was then the big six accounting firms in their cybersecurity practices, and then uh, over time, actually took a, a senior leadership role with two publicly traded companies. And, and that, Chris, is when I got some scars on my back dealing with cybersecurity and helping those organizations try to figure out how do we marshal the resources? How do we justify spending time and money and effort on cybersecurity? And, uh, and, and when do we not, you know, frankly? And, uh, and so I think it gave me a unique perspective uh, to understand what companies are struggling with and how sometimes the business decision doesn't always seem to make sense to the security person um, and you know why, why a business person would choose to do or to not to do certain parts of cybersecurity. So uh, eventually I found myself feeling strongly that I wanted to get back on the consulting side and try to bring a relevant and practical approach to my former peer group and help them uh, learn uh, as I had learned uh, maybe how to uh, how to move things forward in their organizations. And that's what we do at LBMC. We, we spend a lot of time focusing specifically on cybersecurity and, uh, and we've carved out quite a niche in the healthcare space as a matter of fact. Things like HIPAA risk assessments and penetration tests and some of those things that that hospitals and health systems and other healthcare organizations have to deal with. We spend a lot of time with them, helping them uh, conduct those assessments and understand the results. What does it mean in today's day and age for cybersecurity in the healthcare space for hospitals, health systems? You know, what you think about when you think about cybersecurity, of course, is you think about the stuff you read about in the paper. You know, you think about companies like uh, Equifax being breached, or you think about somebody getting a ransomware attack and having to pay the ransom to get their data back and those things. And those are, they're, they're real, they happen, and there's something that, that, that companies have to deal with. But practically, most companies today are actually focusing largely on more compliance aspects of security. In the healthcare industry, uh, the things people uh, in security, from a security perspective, that they think most about would be HIPAA. And as we know, you know HIPAA has a, a component of security, and, and it certainly obligates uh, covered entities and uh, business associates to meet a, a minimum level of security. And so most organizations today are really driving their efforts towards making sure that they comply with HIPAA. What I want to kind of emphasize there is that's both a blessing and a curse because from a business leader standpoint, um, it is important that an organization comply with HIPAA and meet its obligation to do so under the law. But a lot of times meeting the HIPAA specification doesn't necessarily mean the organization is properly or effectively managing its cybersecurity risks. And so if you think of it like running a race, people would say, hey, I'm running the HIPAA security race. And when I get to the point where, you know, I'm HIPAA compliant, I've crossed the finish line. I'm going to pat myself on the back and I'm going to put the medal around my neck and take my victory lap and say, I did it. We got HIPAA compliant. The problem for cybersecurity is the bad guys are still finding new ways in. There's new threats. There's new vulnerabilities that are discovered in systems. And so if a company thinks of it more of as, as running a race, it's never over. The race is continuously ongoing. And we want to really encourage organizations to think specifically about security as effectively managing risk to a level the organization can accept rather than saying, are we HIPAA compliant? Great. We're good. What are the, the threats and the, the new threats that, that are coming up? What are we seeing that's out there? Yeah. You know, interestingly enough, it's uh, the, the, what, is, uh, what is new or what is old is what's new again, I guess, is a, a, a phrase that you could use because the, the common things that we're seeing that all organizations, including healthcare organizations, are struggling with really have to do with 
people-based flaws. And uh, we would call those social engineering attacks. And that's taking advantage of the trusting and helpful nature of people or the gullibility of, of someone to get them to carry out an action on your behalf or something like that. And Chris, the way that most commonly happens is the good old phishing email. An unsolicited message comes in. And uh, you know, back in the old days, they were pretty easy for a vigilant uh, person to sniff out because they had bad grammar and you know you could roll your mouse over the link and it would tell you, oh, it's not really the link, it's a different link. And you know some of those clues don't work today. The bad guys have evolved the way they're using those phishing emails and the technology that they're using to make them look just like a legitimate email. And it is very difficult for even the most discerning user to always determine whether or not this is a legitimate email or uh, a potential phishing email. And so what we're seeing is organizations are falling victim to that and users are giving up their credentials. You know, their username mm-hmm. and passwords because they're thinking mm-hmm. it's a legitimate request or mm-hmm. they're clicking on a link and going to a website and unknowingly installing software on their system that's giving the bad guy the ability to manipulate that system or install that ransomware. You know, those are very common mistakes and I can see how people people can make those in, in haste. I, I get a number of emails a day. I'm a, I try to be vigilant uh, in terms of my emails and I'm not even in a big organization. Tell me some of the things that hospitals, you mentioned HIPAA. What are the implications if there are security breaches? Well, the most significant one, obviously, would be that um, if there is a breach, there's a chance that the facility or the hospital will have to do a breach disclosure. So um, over time, as HIPAA evolved, um, the government realized, hey, um, we need to make sure that organizations understand that we're serious about them complying with HIPAA. And so they added in the high tech amendment to HIPAA, and it did two things. One thing it did was it, it, it actually put in an, uh, an opportunity to put some encryption in place. And the second thing that it did was it introduced this breach notification obligation, which in essence specifies that if a certain number of records are breached, an organization has to make a public disclosure of that breach and they have to report it to the government and some things like that. And the, I mentioned the encryption on the counterpoint. What they said is unless the organization has properly implemented encryption and, and they can determine that the data that was breached was encrypted and therefore it couldn't have actually been seen by the bad guy because he didn't have the key. And, and that's called safe harbor. So the, the implication, the most significant one for an organization, uh, a healthcare organization would be potentially having to stick its hand up and acknowledge, Hey, we've had a security breach and then deal with the ramifications, which, of course, could be lawsuits, uh, no doubt reputation you know, damage, um, and, and then potentially having to do things like what Equifax did, which is pay for uh, security monitoring for the affected individuals or set up a website or, or um, you, know, you can expect maybe they're going to have to hire a third party to come in and do some security investigation, those types of things. And that's probably why they would want to reach out to your company, to you even, to help them along, uh, you know, developing a, a strategy. So tell us a little bit about what you are doing with hospitals in this space and how do you help them to maybe, you know, be as preventative as they could against these security breaches? First thing, the most important thing that an organization can do is conduct a security risk assessment. Uh, The idea is that a risk assessment is going to help an organization identify the most significant security risks that it's facing, and then they can make those well-informed decisions to say, which ones do we want to address? Which which risks are high enough that we, we can't accept them? We have to mitigate those. And so we spend a lot of time helping organizations do that. 
And interestingly enough, the HIPAA security rule requires an organization to conduct a risk assessment. Now, it doesn't require the company to use a third party like LBMC, but what we find, Chris, is that organizations that choose to use third parties get a more objective view because, you know, a lot of times a company says, hey, we understand we're good about this. And they, they give themselves a little more credit maybe than what an objective person might with uh, with progress that they've made or a control they put in place. And, and secondly, because we're working with so many healthcare organizations, we're seeing what's happening out there. And sometimes we can provide a perspective to a client and say, hey, listen, you know, you may have thought that was okay, but it, it didn't work out so well for this other organization. And let us tell you, you know, what might work better. So, so the way to start is a risk assessment. And it works like this. Basically, you take a list of threats, which is bad things that could happen, you know, cybersecurity issues that a company could have. And you determine the likelihood that those bad things are going to happen. And uh, the likelihood is impacted by the presence or absence of security controls that the company has in place. And then um, once we've determined the likelihood that the particular bad thing could happen, we determine what the impact would be if that bad thing did happen. And you use those and that calculates a risk score. And then obviously, Chris, the goal is you look at the ones that are high. And uh, most of those, the organization says, we don't want them to be high. What do we need to do to lower the risk rating of those? And that's what you're, what becomes the, the organization's remediation plan. Are you working just exclusively with uh, people that are like on the IT side? Actually, I would say that a risk assessment that only works with the IT folks is probably not a very comprehensive risk assessment because mm-hmm. there are lots of uh, entities within any organization that impact security risks. And I'll give you a specific example. In most organizations, the human resources department has a very significant role in the onboarding of new personnel. And that includes making sure that they get set up with the appropriate access privileges in the system. You know, HR will usually complete those forms or make sure that they're completed and may even have a hand in setting them up in certain systems. Um, Generally, you'll want to talk to those HR folks and understand those processes. Another person or entity that we talk to within the organization is the person responsible for compliance. Because um, from a compliance standpoint, we want to understand what uh, what types of monitoring programs does the company have in place? Do they have any sort of breach notification plan already defined so that in the off chance that they did have a security breach, they wouldn't have to think about it in the moment. They, you know, a lot of times acting in the emotion, it's hard for us as humans to think clearly. But if we've got a plan already defined for if we had a security incident or a privacy incident, how would we handle those? Then it's much easier to execute that plan by following you know, what's written down on paper. And then we might also, Chris, talk to uh, someone who can give us a legal perspective. The legal department, the chief legal counsel, or even the outside counsel is going to have a perspective on uh, that would be relevant. And then, of course, from a, a business standpoint, we want to understand the business's risk tolerance. Different organizations can tolerate different levels of risk, and it's not the same for everybody, even in the same industry. Talking to some of the business leaders to understand what their perspective is on that helps us then put the risk that we're finding in a context that makes it relevant for that organization and helps them decide which ones do we have the appetite for and which ones do we need to go and address. We recently were talking on on a previous episode around crisis communication and how to respond to crisis communication. And it sounds like uh, the approach around uh, security breaches could be very similar to a crisis communication. Do you work in, in that regard, helping organizations when they have a security breach, how they possibly respond to that? Chris, we sure do. And I I know that particularly your listeners will be 
interested in this because, uh, and I hope that they never have to deal with this, but if they do, a cybersecurity incident is, is a crisis to some degree. And, and uh, for those that have already have a crisis communication plan, what I would suggest is you'll want to make sure that crisis communication plan includes and acknowledges the fact that it could be a cybersecurity breach as a part of one of those crises. And so what we'll do with an organization is a, is a tabletop exercise. And the way that works, Chris, we'll take a scenario, one or more scenarios, which are actual security issues that organizations could face, and we'll actually walk the, the company through that scenario. Sometimes we'll do it in what's called an as-you-work manner, which basically means we'll be hired by somebody and everyone will know what day we're going to do it, but they won't know exactly what time. And so we'll just kind of show up and we'll say, hey, here's the scenario. And then all of a sudden they get called away from their, their desks, just as they might if they were experiencing a real issue. And they're brought into a conference room and they start to work the issue together. As they do that, we facilitate the conversation and we have what's called injections, which are basically parameters that change, you know, things that they learn as they go through the investigation. And sometimes it's things they didn't expect to learn. And it causes them to have to pivot and decide, oh, well, we thought we were going to do this. But now that we have this, this injection, this, this different parameter, we can't do that. We have to take another path. And so by practicing their incident response plan, which is what we call the, the, the cybersecurity component, then they're much more able to figure out where was it deficient? You know, what, what gaps did we find? And at the end of that tabletop exercise, then we'll walk them through a lessons learned. And we'll say, hey, um, what adjustments did you need to make to your written documentation? What adjustments did you need to make to your team, for example? You know, they may say, oh, we thought we only needed four people on our team, but we figured out that we didn't have enough people or we didn't have the right knowledge in the room. And so we'll need to make sure that two or three other people in the organization know that they're a part of the team and they understand what their roles are if they're called. Um, that tabletop exercise is very valuable in validating the organization's approach, uh, helping them make sure their documentation is robust, and in familiarizing the individuals on that incident response team with their roles and responsibilities so that if they have to go through it in real life, Again, it's a practice. It's much easier for them to kind of manage through it in a calm, in a calm way, and, and they're much likely, much more likely to have a better outcome. And, and Chris, kind of one more point to add. One of the things about that instant response process is we typically will suggest that the organization simulate going through a breach disclosure, and that's where um, the public relations component might come in. And uh, making sure that, uh, hey, how would we write a statement? Who would be issuing that statement on behalf of the company? Do we have the right connections with law enforcement and, and those types of things that we might need to interact with throughout this process? And how would we coach some of our other leaders who might get called by the media ask and ask questions so that they don't make statements that are outside of the swim lane that we want to stay in in terms of the information we're willing to provide about this ongoing incident? As we move in more and more to becoming open and wanting to be more digital, are, are there any other trends that we need to be aware of and, and, and just keep an eye on from a security perspective? What we're seeing now, you've probably heard the term Internet of Things. And so you know, you've got so many digital connected devices in our homes and things like that. Well, in a hospital, many of the medical devices that are used to provide care are Internet connected as well. You know, they're plugged into a wall port and they're on a network just like computers are. As a matter of fact, they have a computer, you know, as a part of their brain. And so the trick with that, Chris, is that those devices are typically built by a vendor 
and they're delivered to the hospital. Once they are delivered to the hospital, they're not treated like a computer where they're patched regularly because the IT department doesn't know how they work. You know, that's not, that's not, they're they're not supposed to know exactly how they work. Those things don't get patched in the same way that, uh, that the, the computing devices hopefully are getting patched in the organization. And so, um, the bad guys are figuring that out and they're figuring out, Hey, these things do have a brain. They do have computer code in them and therefore they're potentially manipulable. And so we're seeing some of the newer attacks start to acknowledge that fact and start to look for ways to leverage vulnerabilities in those medical devices and get the attacker what's called a foothold on the network that the attacker can then use to continue to move around and see what else he or she can do, potentially knock that medical device offline or potentially use it to jump around into other systems in the environment. So um, that's one of the things that in the cybersecurity world we're working on right now. And I've actually seen that some of the lawmakers, the U.S. lawmakers, have acknowledged that that's an issue. And they're looking at, is there a way they can put some legislation in place that would help to guide healthcare organizations and the vendors that provide those devices towards doing it in a secure way? Are there any other things that we need to be aware of? Probably the the biggest thing that I think that uh, organizations are, are struggling with right now is kind of password management. And I talked about how social engineering, you know, taking advantage of the trusting and helpful nature of people is one of the common ways that attackers are are getting into networks. And part of the reason they're doing that is that users are struggling with choosing good passwords. One of the things that an organization will want to do is, is educate its users on how to choose good passwords. But secondly, the, the big push right now in cybersecurity is to move away from using the password as the only authentication mechanism and use something called two-factor or multi-factor authentication. And this basically means, Chris, that instead of just relying on that password, you're asking for another piece of information. It's typically a token or something that the user possesses and um, those who have it will know it. It's, um, it's often a key fob that has numbers that rotate on it, or sometimes they'll open up an application on their phone and it will have a code or they'll get a text message. And, uh, and so when they go to log in, they would still put their username and password in, but then shortly after that, they would get that second, that token, that second factor, and they would provide that. And that's how they would be uh, allowed access to the computer system. The benefit of that approach is that if someone does get their password or if they fall victim to a phishing attack, the, the bad guy's not going to have the token. And therefore, while he might have the password, he won't be able to log in because he won't have that other factor. Mark, you gave us a lot to think about. And I know that there are a number of people listening in that probably want to learn a little bit more about you. How, what are the best ways that they can maybe reach out to you, learn a little bit more about what you do and what LBMC does? Yeah, Chris, they can find us on the web at lbmcinformationsecurity.com. Um, and the contact information is out there. My name is Mark Burnett, and that's B-U-R-N-E-T-T-E. Um, love to hear from them. If they have any questions or if they're talking to their IT departments at their organization and some of the answers they're getting back uh, you know, raise some red flags, we'd be happy to take a call and, uh, and kind of coach them through some things and see if there's a way we can help. And not only your website, Mark, you also do a podcast or LBMC does a podcast. Tell us a little bit about that. Chris, we sure do, you're, especially your listeners will be interested to know that um, if information security is something that's of interest to them, uh, we have weekly podcasts that they can access uh, via iTunes or it's accessible via our website as well. Um, we cover all kinds of topics. We cover uh, topics like ransomware, um, but we have so many experts that we try. We like to uh, 
switch it up a little bit and make sure that they, the listeners get to hear a whole bunch of different things. So if it's something of interest, I hope that they'll go check it out. Well, this has been very useful. I really, really am grateful for your time, Mark, and sharing some of your great ideas. Thank you so much. Chris, thank you very much. And to all your listeners out there, stay secure. All right, that brings us to the end of episode 39 on cybersecurity. Uh, Thanks uh, to our expert, Martin Burnett, for being on the podcast and uh, bringing some actual uh, expertise uh, and knowledge. So that was awesome. A couple things before we get to recommendations. Uh, Chris and I will be doing a webinar on podcasting. Many of you have heard us talk about and know we're involved with the Mayo Clinic Uh, social media network and so we're doing that on november the 15th if you're interested you can head over socialmedia.mayoclinic.org to learn more Uh, if you're not a member there's uh, information there about how to join or get access to that podcast Uh, in addition to that i'll be at the mississippi hospital association later this week so as you listen to this uh, I'll be there on November 2nd and 3rd talking about uh, kind of some benchmarking statistics around the digital and social use of hospitals around the country. And then also, it's been funny, obviously, uh, for those that listened to last week's episode uh, live from the Healthcare Internet Conference, may remember that Chris and I were also, uh, also did the same thing. May, I guess it was. Is that right? Was it May? At the Forums for Healthcare Strategists. So, Next year, I think we're starting to hear from more and more conferences like on potentially having Touchpoint there as a live or kind of a little bit of a different addition to the conference. And so we look to be doing more of those in 2018. And if you work for a hospital association or you, you're looking to do a get together of other professionals in the space and you're interested in having us be there, we could facilitate good conversations with people and uh, do a recording. It would be great. Just reach out to us. Let us know. Absolutely. And then finally, if you would go over to iTunes, be sure to rate and review us when you're subscribing or picking up the latest episode. We certainly appreciate that. With that said, recommendations. All right, Reed, I'm going to recommend something that I've been using quite a lot lately. I know that we're talking about data security today and how important that is. It's interesting that I'm going to be recommending an app that allows you to transfer money among people easily. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great recommendation exactly. for the cyber Exactly. Security. So the app that I use is called Cash. And I found it to be really, really easy to use. It allows me to connect to my bank accounts and do transfers to other people that are authorized on this app. Now, I would assume it's a lot like Venmo, it's a, which is also a really good app to be used. And I've been using that for a number of years. I think that you know it's very helpful, particularly when you are doing work between small businesses or like you have people that, like, like my trainer, for example, I pay him through the Cash app. And it just makes it a lot easier for us to do that transaction. So it's called Cash. And it's really a great user interface. There is assumptively a lot of security on the back end to make sure that my information isn't, you know, compromised. And I hope that all those baddies out there listening today are not actively trying to hack into my account now. Crossing my fingers. That's a good one. That's a really good one. Uh, All right. So I'm going to recommend, and in all transparency, this is a client, but they, I was a customer before. 
they were a client. Dodo Case. So D-O-D-O Case.com. So they mm. make cases, as you would imagine, for Apple products. So iPhones, iPads, you know, that kind of thing. They even have some leather goods, some sleeves for like MacBooks, MacBook Air, you know, that kind of stuff. But it's they have a custom process. So you actually build custom cases. And they look, you know, I guess the simplest way to say it is it looks like a moleskin. So everybody loves the good moleskin notebooks and, and ones that look like that, but it holds your iPad or your iPhone or, or whatever you want. So again, there are some canvas-based leather goods, even uh, sleeves and things like that for your um, phone and, and iPad and all that kind of good stuff. But specifically the case and the custom cases, they're already on the website for the iPhone 10, obviously the 8 and 8 Plus. So go on there, design you a custom case and uh, get it shipped to you. So really cool stuff, all handmade. Wow, that's really cool. It's awesome. You and I were just talking about leather mm -hmm. cases for our technologies and how cool they were. Didn't know about this. This is, looks really great. And it looks like you could do some customization and everything on it. Awesome. Yeah, you can get it monogrammed or if you uh, would like, you could actually place custom uh, like corporate orders with your logo and stuff like that on them. So yeah, lots of options. That brings us to the end. And so uh, he is Chris Boyer. I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week.